Good evening. I'm Brandon Mercer. And I'm Joshua Stein. Today is Thursday, February 4th, 2016, and this is episode 12 of Garbage. All right. On this week's episode, we have a bunch of things happening in OpenBSD this week. Um, there's a little bit of news with my APU2, and then you get what you've been waiting for when JCS and I have more things to rant about that we can shake a stick at. Uh, so we're just going to start uh, ranting about things on the web this week. Sounds fun. Yeah, there's plenty of things this week that deserve a good lashing, so that's what we're going to do. But first, um, let's talk about OpenBSD. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work uh, backwards a little bit here. Um, today, I think, uh, one of the developers sent out the notice that the ports tree is going to slow down. Um, so no more new ports. We've been importing a ton of stuff. Uh, no more updates. Um, this is really only like security fixes, people test things and all that kind of stuff. So nothing new goes in for a while. Yeah, I think we moved to the actual release a couple of days ago. The version string now is no longer current. It's the release. And then, uh, yeah, so I think everything is starting to get um, put together so that we can start testing that and we can start running stuff and see how, uh, how things are looking. Um, test some snapshots if you guys are using snapshots. Um, but there's plenty of good things happening right now. Um, Patrick has been uh, sending in diffs to tech for some ARM stuff that he's been working on. That's uh, really exciting to see a bunch of um, work on there. And... Uh, he and I have been kind of talking um, out of band about what other things we can work on in ARM and what kind of strategy we need to take with things. And uh, one of the things we're talking about is flattened device tree, which I kind of was a little frustrated with a while ago. And uh, now we're kind of circling back to how we need to make that work the right way, what it's going to take, and all that kind of stuff. So, um, And then... Uh, there were some changes for host CTL. Um, it got enabled in the build for i386 and AMD64. What is host CTL, Brandon? Host CTL is the host control um, program. <laughs> <laughs> and what does it do? I don't know what it does. Uh, so basically there were like um, these interfaces that uh, the kernel has with various... Um, I guess systems like um, pulling things from Zen or from VMware or on certain platforms where you can like read variables out of the EEPROM and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, that's all kind of getting unified into one uh, standard interface that host CTL can read and write um, variables to. Uh, is this similar to the stuff that we had back on Spark 64? Uh, yes, I believe that stuff will eventually get changed to uh, use host CTL. Nice. Very cool. Well, that's exciting to see that happening. Um, Rake was working on that, and um, yeah. So that'll be good when we have a unified interface for all of our virtual infrastructure to hit. Um, in other news, um, there were a bunch of SMTPD updates going in. Um, I, I don't really have the specifics on it, but if you're using SMTPD... Um, I think now would be a good time to uh, take a look at things because a bunch of small improvements and bug fixes went in, so that should be um, well on its way to being quite usable. I know a lot of people are running that now. So, um, Also, let's see, what do we have? 
All right, so Ken Westerbeck, he was um, cleaning up DH client. He was um, working on the packet parsing code a little bit to make it um, a little bit more robust. And it looks like he's continued to work on um, PDISC as well. And he also got that pledged this week. So, What is PDISC, Brandon? I have no idea what PDISC is. PDISC is the uh, FDISC equivalent for the old Apple partition map. Okay. Uh, disk layout. So like uh, FDISC is for the MBR uh, partition layout and it now handles uh, GPT inside of it. Mm-hmm. But PDISC, I guess, was like a really old program that's just been around um, and never really got any updates. But it was to use the old, I mean, I guess it's appropriate since the Apple partition map is no longer really used. Yeah. Um, but I guess Ken is uh, tackling that and cleaning it all up. Yeah, we also had a GDISC diff from Joel Singh that I was using to work on the ARM stuff. And <laughs> so I know of the G-Disc and I know of the F-Disc, but I'd never heard of the P-Disc. What uh, format does G-Disc work on? It was doing the, um, uh, why am I drawing a blank? The ARM stuff was using it, the um, GPT. Oh, so is that that got merged into F-Disc or is it? That's right. Yeah, instead of having another utility to write, like, um, you know, disk formats, we merged all the work for G-Disk into F-Disk. Okay. All right. So um, one of the things I'm kind of happy about, uh, um, Stuart was working on helping us stay further away from System D. He... uh, (laughs) He was uh, he removed set proc title from the uh, parent process, and basically, I guess RC.D uses those titles to distinguish between the daemons. Um, so now it makes uh, like the RCD, RC.D scripts able to distinguish the parent from the child. Um, so our uh, startup scripts and stuff uh, will work a little bit better now, and we have uh, less overhead. Did I explain that right? I guess so. I mean, it seemed like a lot of the daemons that we had uh, used setproc title to make the master process show up, like in PS, that says, um, you know, the daemon name and then master. Mm-hmm. So you can distinguish which are the master and which are the child processes. Um, but when you do that, you basically get rid of all the command line arguments that were passed to it. So rc.t was not able to find those processes in the ps output and um you know know which one to kill or um be able to run two of the same daemon with different flags uh yeah that's right so i think i ran into that actually i had a an application where i set up a couple rc scripts to launch it and one of them i was using like a config test a flag for the test config and a flag for the production config, and it got confused about them when I was trying to do stuff. Mm. I should test. I should uh, test that again. Okay, so let's talk about the APU2. Um, I saw that there's a new APU2 variant on uh, PC Engine site. They have the APU2C, which looks like they changed the board a little bit to have um, like an onboard Bluetooth module. And I don't, I don't really know too many specifics about it, but it looks like it's going to be um, similar to the APU2B, which is what I have, the 4-gig memory version with uh, ECC memory and stuff. 
and they also released a BIOS update um, recently for it, and I didn't put the notes for that right in front of me. And so that's uh, Core Boot, right? Yeah, that's right. It's uh, Core Boot, and if you ask them, they'll give you the source to the BIOS as well. So That's weird. Why don't they just upstream it or something? Um, I'm not sure, Like, but I will tell you that personal interactions with the um, folks over at PC Engines, they are always open about it. Yep, we'll, you, we'll give you the source. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the vendor was like, yep, here, have it. Um, but it looks like the BIOS update was something to do with the uh, IRQ assignments for the wireless uh, adapter that was going into there. So um, it doesn't look like they have it completely done yet. Um, the notes here still say that the uh, ECC is not working. The ECC memory on the 4 gig version is not working. And um, there's no IPXE module included yet. So a couple other things that they have to get done on the BIOS. But um, yeah, some improvements happening. And uh, I'm still using mine, so I'm hoping maybe when that ECC uh, fix happens that my board gets a little bit more performance. I noticed that it takes almost six minutes to build the Go tool chain on that machine, and it takes like 45 seconds on my laptop. So, so you're not going to upgrade to the new board that has Bluetooth built in? Uh, that actually seems like a step backwards for me. <laughs> that seems like a weird thing to add, but I, maybe for some sort of dedicated embedded thing you'd want Bluetooth, but... Yeah, I mean, obviously there's enough of a business case that they had it put on there, so I don't know. Hmm. Oh, man. So we had some interesting dialogue with our uh, listeners this week. Um, In the email, we had a bunch of you write in and uh, tell us how much you appreciate the show. Uh, Thanks for doing that. We also had some people reply back who were uh, ranting just like we were about, you know, why do people ignore... Um, that things are kind of garbage in, in the technology industry. And I thought that that was a really good point to make. And it seems like um, my experience is, is that people just don't want to, they don't want to call it rubbish or they don't want to call it trash. They, they just want to kind of be politically correct and not hurt people's feelings. And, um, you know, I, I get called a nonconformist all the time just because I'm like, this is rubbish. And they're like, well, it's not rubbish. It's just not as good as the thing you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, the thing I'm talking about and the thing I'm using is uh, the only compromise I'm willing to make. I'm not calling it glorious. I'm not calling it wonderful and great. I'm just saying that it's r- really the only thing that makes sense. <laughs> And so to not call the other thing garbage is kind of doing it a disservice, I think, in a lot of areas. But <clears throat> I don't know why people skirt about that and say, oh, yeah, well, that could be better, or oh, yeah, that could be better. But I think if we likened some of the technology things to, um, you know, like physical things, you'd say, I, I can't even use this. Like, my mm-hmm. coffee grinder doesn't have this feature, or, you know, you, you contract... E. coli from using this coffee grinder. <laughs> well, we're working to make it better every day. It's like, no, 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 this is a food piece of equipment. You can't let that in there. <laughs> yeah. And the old coffee grinder I have works fine. Yeah, exactly. I don't I don't have to upgrade it just because you are insisting that I have to get a new one. Yeah, I don't understand this whole idea of like I guess it's this like Internet of Things 
where we have to put the internet in every little device, which just ends up making them so much worse. Is it even possible to buy a new TV that doesn't have all the like apps and stuff built into it? Like, is it possible to even get one that's just like a plain HDMI interface that turns on and shows you a whatever is connected to it without all kinds of bullshit? I think it's called a, a Dell monitor. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I know exactly what you mean. And in fact, um, there was something I read this week that talked about Samsung's user agreement saying don't talk about personal information in the oh, vicinity yeah. of the TV because um, we're recording. <laughs> right. And uh, we could leak your personal information. Yeah, don't. That's not our fault. Like it's your fault for talking too close to your television in your own living room. Yeah, they said anything above a whisper will be heard and sent back. <laughs> I don't know. I I do think that's weird too. Uh, light bulbs and TVs, and 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 so even if you, I mean, even if you're a pretty security conscious person, you don't know what's inside your TV. So your TV could be like the pivot point for malware and people attacking your network and finding out uh, what you're doing and you know even if it's not an attack against you they can still harvest information and sell that to people and there's mm -hmm. people making lots of money doing that uh, kind of thing you know especially with multimedia servers um, you know they they get into some device on your network and they probe your network and I mean they're not installing malware they just look at other devices and then they sell that um, and people are making money on that and I just <laughs> yeah I just don't agree with that I, I don't I mean they're legitimate businesses doing this and I just don't think that that's a good thing at all I can't stand it yeah these vendors have to rush to market with all of these uh, tiny devices that have internet connectivity so the code that they're using is probably crap it hasn't been audited. It never gets updated once it gets put into production. Like, So you either have to have something like your refrigerator permanently connected to the internet so it can check for updates uh, every week. And now that I say that, I'm remembering that uh, I saw some sort of internet-connected fridge was vulnerable to a man-in-the-middle attack because it didn't use SSL for checking for updates. Mm -hmm. And it's like, how ridiculous is it that your fridge could stop working because of some bullshit internet connectivity that's on it. Yeah. Not even like the the uh the boogeyman aspect of it like someone could hack into your fridge and like spy on your kids, but like if the thing stops working because of all that extra stuff that's put in it, it stops functioning as a fridge. Like it, it doesn't keep food cold anymore. And it's right. like so what the hell was the point of this stupid touch screen on my fridge uh that I that you know, I wouldn't even use and it's just ridiculous. And then it's like, you want to just buy a normal fridge, but you can't because uh, every vendor that makes a fridge now feels like they have to add that crap to keep up with uh, whoever came out with it first. Yeah, because they won't sell anymore. I mean, they yeah. don't, I mean, everybody produces based on a feature list. And it doesn't matter if your product hits uh, all the marks in that feature list or not. Um, that's how people sell and that's how people buy. They read a box and they say, yep, this has the best stats, this has the best features, I'm going to buy it. Yeah, or even like, you know, I have no, somebody walks into a store and is like, I have no desire to do anything on the internet from my fridge, but they're looking at two fridges and one has a flat screen on it and one doesn't, and they're the same price. They're like, well, maybe I'll just get the one with the touchscreen because it might do something cool in the future that I might want to use. Yeah. Uh, so 
And then if they're the same price, think about how much money they actually spent making that touchscreen device work in a secure and reliable fashion. Probably not much. Yeah, and I think the other problem I have with that too is think about how dangerous some of these uh, situations could be. If someone gets in to your refrigerator and maybe they can create enough electrical load to cause a fire or on a printer. I mean, we've seen people uh, be able to tickle bugs in the firmware that can literally catch paper on fire and, and start your house burning down. And uh, that kind of stuff is, is also a very real problem with some of these things. I mean, we have people in light bulbs, we have people in refrigerators and all these kind of things. And, you know, if someone wanted to do something malicious, that avenue is there um, even more prevalent now, I guess, than it was before. Yeah. There's a somewhat related story that I um, saw today, and that is the Repair Association. Um, I saw this link to from Vice, I think it was. It's an advocacy group lobbying for the right to repair everything. So they're basically um, like a legal organization that's actually lobbying to get uh, laws passed or existing laws fixed that guarantee uh, consumers, people that have actually purchased the things you know that we're talking about, they guarantee them the property rights. So the manufacturer can't take it back. The manufacturer can't deny you the ability to upgrade it or change it or take it apart or replace parts in it with uh, third-party parts, something like that. They're demanding equal access. So you have um, access to the same diagnostics information and parts that are available to the dealer. So that means like manuals, uh, circuit diagrams, uh, software updates, parts, all that kind of stuff. Um, I remember when the new MacBook, I think it was the MacBook Air, came out and they used a uh, certain type of screw on the bottom of it yep. that most repair shops didn't even have it, let alone you know end users that want to open it up. So I remember when I got mine, I wanted to open mine up and I had to buy a uh, like custom screwdriver that hadn't even been mass produced yet that all these uh, companies were starting to make just for the MacBook uh I guess it was. Um, that's kind of ridiculous. Yeah, it is. It's really ridiculous. And and it wasn't something where it was like, oh, we're going to make this screw look a little bit better by using something a little bit more advanced. It, it wasn't a SAE versus metric or something like that. Right. They built this specifically to keep people out of their stuff. Yeah. So that uh, repair association, they have a website at repair.org. Um, so you should uh, check it out. That's interesting. And uh, let's see, Google bans ad blocking apps from Google Play. Uh, no one is surprised by this, <laughs> but um, Samsung, I guess, came out with a um, like API for their web browser that they ship on their Android devices, mm -hmm. so that third party apps could hook into that and provide ad blocking. Uh, Google, um, and I guess uh, somebody made an app and came out with it uh, within the past few days called um, Adblock Fast, and Google took it down and said that they were violating uh, the terms of the Google Play developer distribution agreement because you can't write, you can't put software on the Play Store that interferes, uh, so to speak, with third-party software, which is, I guess, Google software that's trying to show you ads. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, I'm not really surprised by this given Google's position as um, a company that sells ads, but I think it's uh, kind of interesting to compare 
how Apple did it with iOS, where they actually baked this into the operating system itself so that third-party apps could be built to provide um, blacklists for ad blocking. They integrated it into uh, WebKit so that all the applications that run on the phone that use the standard web browser uh, get this ad blocking by default. Um, and then, you know, they released it and the top selling apps on the app store were a bunch of third party, um, ad blockers. And then in contrast, Google, uh, obviously didn't put this in the operating system and they're outright preventing, uh, developers from being able to do that. That, that doesn't seem to line up with what they used to say. I mean, do you remember when, uh, they do their keynotes and they'd be talking about like, if you don't want to see ads, you know, you can choose to opt out of it because they didn't want to waste our time and waste their resources serving up ads um, to people who didn't want to see them. Mm -hmm. And but now I think a lot of the um, app makers. So is this ads for uh, in-app advertisement from, you know, like whatever ad network that they decide to throw in there? So like you're on some flashlight app and it's like, hey, check out this thing. Hey, check out this whatever. Or is this... Um... I think it's, uh, at least the the way that Samsung did it, it's uh, only with their, their own web browser. So it doesn't affect uh, in, in-app ads or anything like that. Yeah, and it's same on, on iOS. It doesn't, um, if you have a block list or an app that, that blocks ads, it's only in Safari and any um, third-party apps that that show you like a web browser um, pop-up screen. It's it doesn't have anything to do with um, in-app ads or anything like that. Yeah, that's crazy. I don't know. I think it's it's weird that Google, their primary source of income is still from advertising. Mm-hmm. So as much technology as they have and that they've invented, and the number of engineers that they have there, they're all still beholden to the advertisers, I guess. Well, and that kind of begs the question, when you're a company and you want to get your name out there, is this really, like, is this really how you grow your business? Like, of all the small businesses that exist today, I mean, are they shelling out the thousands of dollars a month to, you know, grow their business through this, you know, ad network? Is this really generating, you know, Google's billions of dollars a year? I guess. <laughs> it must. Yeah. It, like, I I often think, um, what if Google did not come from advertisements? Like, what if all their money came from something else that everybody else kind of agreed was not creepy? Um, all the engineers could get behind it and, you know, do whatever they wanted without the possibility of um, pissing off the, the advertisers. Like, think about how much different that company would be they would basically be like the modern equivalent of bell labs mm-hmm. um where you have a huge uh you know basically a monopoly but you have a giant um parent corp- corporation that provides something for the entire country that they need which is phone service and then you have bell labs where all these these smart people are basically paid to just invent stuff like every day go to work and try and invent stuff and see uh what you can come up with, whether it has to do with uh, providing phone service or not. And I mean, uh, just think about all the the crazy stuff that we got out of Bell Labs because of that. Yeah. I mean, just a whole list of, of things that the whole world is so much better for 
because these smart people were allowed to just, you know, invent whatever they wanted and they didn't have to worry about um, that conflicting with their parent company. Yeah, and, and they were solving the tough problems. Like, it, it seems like um, <clears throat> Google's finding avenues to, uh, like, drum up more ads and get more people on the web and, you know, right. do that kind of thing. But they're not solving the tough technological problems. And when you look at AT&T, you see them doing that. I mean, I look at IBM, and I think that they, you know, were tackling the tough problems. But... Um, Let's talk about another technology company who isn't Google, who I think is uh, solving tough technology problems or tough engineering problems, and that is Tesla. I think Tesla is tackling some really tough problems, and my personal take is that they're interested in, um, you know, bettering the environment. I, I think that um, Elon is 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 saying very upfront with the investors, look, uh, we're giving this away. We're giving away these um, patents that show people how to do this because, you know, we want to see people still be around in 20 years and not, you know, kill ourselves from destroying the environment. Mm -hmm. But I also think that that company is solving really, really tough engineering problems. And I think that, you know, if you look at um, some of the things that came out of uh, Bell Labs, and how they scaled to, you know, other companies started making them, and then there were variants of them. I think the same type of thing is happening with Tesla. They're solving big, tough um, problems. They're showing people how to solve it, and then you see, like, all these other manufacturers, like, okay, well, here's our version of it, and it's a little bit different. And But it still improves the situation that, uh, you know, Tesla Motors or Tesla is trying to solve, and I think that that's a good thing. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, the, all the smart people that work at Google, it's like, oh, what do you work on? Oh, I work on preventing spam so that we can sell more advertisements yeah. to the advertisers. Well, and if, and if you look at it now, I mean, uh, OpenBSD has taken a lot of heat for only focusing on security is what people say. Um, but you look at the things that um, devastate these products, and, you know, nobody really sets it up, uh, starts off a project or a product um, as saying, we want security be, to be our number one focus. But mm -hmm. when you look at what will bring them down and what costs them just tons of money every year, uh, it's because they didn't do it right and they didn't take their time and they didn't do the important things. Yes, you got it to market. Yes, you sold a bunch of them. But then what happened from that there's consequences to the company and there's consequences to the consumer yeah um just to pick on google some more it was a write-up from google's project zero team um about a flaw in google chrome and it was how to uh exploit this bug in the midi interface in chrome and of course my first reaction is why the hell does the web browser need access to your midi hardware yeah uh, second of all, are there that many people using MIDI hardware that this had to become like some uh, W3C like standard or something like that? Uh, and so the bug is basically how to exploit a race condition in the MIDI hardware access to get unsandboxed code execution. Yikes. So, yeah, I hope that it was worth it <laughs> to expose all everybody running Chrome uh, to 
I guess, provide support for the five people in the world that need MIDI hardware access in their web browser? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're exposing a lot through the web browser these days. I mean, it's, it's bad enough that, well, I remember security audits used to say like, oh, you know, you only have two ports open, 80 and 443, that's pretty good. Yeah. But when you look at all the attacks that come over that, I mean, it's just a silly argument to make. Right. Hey, so talking about um, browsers, I started to look at um, the Servo project today, and I kind of was chuckling to myself a little bit about, uh, you know, wanting to learn Rust a while ago because it was supposed to be a really good... Um, you know, web application language for serving really fast web applications and mm -hmm. memory safe and all this kind of stuff. And uh, and so now they have a servo project, and the servo project is uh, the browser engine. And what is happening with that is they're looking to build um, something for Firefox um, using this new servo browser engine. And I thought it would be really cool. So you could build an operating system with Rust, and then you could build like your browser in Rust, and then you could also have your web applications being served in Rust. And uh, I was having a little chuckle with myself about it, I guess, just because you know it was like this new language, this new technology that was going to really solve all these problems. And it and it kind of uh, seemed funny to me that they would all be doing uh, um, trying to meet the same end game. You could be at controlling every piece of the the spectrum. Yeah. Or you could run Node on your backend to get JavaScript on the server, and then you could have JavaScript in the browser, and then you could implement a web browser engine in JavaScript and have JavaScript everywhere. Yeah, I, I think we have that today. <laughs> yeah, it's a scary thing. But yeah, I'm uh, I'm very excited for the Servo project. Um, I think that uh, you know. Even without uh, it being Rust, just having that kind of uh, re-engineering of the entire uh, underpinnings of a web browser uh, should just make things um, so much more secure and hopefully reliable. Yeah, the, I, and I guess one of the goals of having Servo, uh, the, the major rewrite of this browser engine for Mozilla, is that uh, they know that they have a big gaping hole with sandboxing. Mm -hmm. And um, so, I mean, the folks that work on that are really serious about um, optimizing JavaScript so that it can't go execute in places where JavaScript shouldn't be executing and have access to things that JavaScript shouldn't have access to. And uh, they're really passionate about, you know, the XOR that they just implemented. And, and so now, I mean, they've really taken a big swing, I mean, building an entire rendering engine just to solve the sandboxing issue the right way. Um, I mean, I, I find that compelling, especially because um, you look at the, the development cycle for WebKit, and I just see, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of vulnerabilities in WebKit. And, you know, frankly, I don't know which version I have where, because mm -hmm. it's just such a uh, broken development paradigm where, you know, oh, they've been fixed in this one. Well, we have this as a, our own third party, so we have our own patches applied, so we don't really pull in the security updates until, you know, whenever, and it's like, uh, it's, yeah. it's a huge mess right now. I think somebody was complaining about that 
um, this week as well, just talking about how many different uh, versions of WebKit we have in so many different places and uh, how poorly and slowly the updates make their way to things like Chrome. Yeah. Um, if anyone from the Servo project is listening, please release something that we can use as soon as possible and save us and stop short of implementing uh, MIDI access because yeah. nobody needs that or probably lots of other stuff that uh, Firefox has in it. We just need like the basic rendering engine and maybe video support and probably most of the internet would be happy. Yeah, I mean, because think about all the... So, um, U2F, uh, Universal Second Factor Authentication. Mm -hmm. I was... I used YubiKeys for a long time and... Um, Until I, I broke support for them? Well, <laughs> <laughs> you broke it for a day or two, I mean. Yeah. Um, but I, I like the idea of one-time passwords, and I like the idea of how the YubiKey uh, provides that you know, one-time password. It's encrypted and, um, and, and really, uh, I like that much better than the RSA keys and stuff like that. But what the problem was is like with all the tracking and surveillance that we have going on by these merchants and vendors and stuff, you know, if you used your YubiKey at your bank and at a store and at another thing and at another thing and another thing, they can profile that, that user ID with that YubiKey and kind of like see what you do and where you do it and all that kind of stuff and they can find out all sorts of nasty information. So they came up with universal second factor authentication which is like public key cryptography where you know a site says hey I'd like to generate a uh, or we'd like to initiate this authentication with you and you would say okay here's some information and then you generate a public key for them and you know uh, when they prompt you to authenticate, you they use the public key that you gave them and all this kind of stuff. So the problem with that is um, it's no longer the what what the original YubiKey was, which is just a keyboard. You plug it in and it shows up as a USB keyboard device and it spits out a bunch of characters. Mm -hmm. Now it's like um, you know the browser has to initiate communication with some you know hardware. Right, um, so it has to talk to LibUSB to actually like interface with this thing you have plugged in. Yeah, exactly, and that's scary. I mean, yeah, yeah. it's really, it's really, really scary, and that's initiated from JavaScript. Um, you know, and it, I filed a bug with the Chrome team. And it wasn't even about like, hey, I want you know my YubiKey to work in uh, in OpenBSD in Chrome. It was a bug that said, you know, when I visit this site the whole browser crashes. <laughs> right. And that's a problem. And, it, and what happened was on um, Google's uh, site to set up universal two-factor authentication, when you said, all right, I'm going to plug in my device, it would just crash the browser. <laughs> when you went to YubiKeys and you tried it, it just didn't work. And so, on, you know, in the one case, I was like, yeah, okay, you know, the site didn't, uh, didn't work, no big deal. Maybe I don't have hardware support for it. Maybe... OpenBSD needs to support the USB stack a little bit better. Maybe we want to completely shut down the browser having access to the USB stack. But at any, at any rate, it didn't crash my browser. And, and that was kind of the point I made to them. And a whole bunch of people kind of tried to help out and tried to make it work. And ultimately, it was you know, not on their radar to fix, even though the FreeBSD folks kind of said the same thing. So 
Yeah, I'm sure it works in uh, Chrome OS, and that's all they care about. Yeah, I mean that's that's really what it boils down to, and it does work in Chrome OS. And well, and and when the original um, uh, press release went out, they were like, all you need is a, a new version of Google Chrome, and then it kind of like built and like, oh yeah, you need Windows or Mac and right. Linux if you do these quirks and whatever files Linux does quirks in. I don't know. Yeah. I feel like the web browser is like the squid with all of its tentacles, like reaching as far out as it can. And we need like a meat cleaver to just cut them off and stop them from reaching our MIDI devices and our USB devices and all these things. Yeah. And it's like, they just keep growing back and it's like, no, now we want access to your webcam and now we want access to your uh, GPU. Yeah. Your GPU and the GPS on your device. And, uh, you know, what else? Uh, the TPM chip on your motherboard. Right. Yeah. And, 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 and that's what scares me. That's what I was talking about earlier is, you know, if, if you get the right exploit, you can make a laptop catch on fire just by tickling that stuff, you know? Yeah. So, or uh, uh, as we saw with uh, System D, it can just completely brick your laptop by removing certain files in yeah. the uh, UEFI variables directory. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, the ARM space is really no different, but some of this uh, AMD 64 or x86 stuff is starting to really bother me with their BIOSes. And, you know, you can build IPv6 connections and uh, IPsec tunnels from, you know, the the uh, security modules on these boards, and it's just, I don't know, like... I just, nothing in my computer should be able to do that without me telling it to do that. Yeah, that's like the, uh, um, what is the Intel thing that the newer, um, like Core Boot won't work on newer ThinkPads because they can't replace this giant binary blob? Yeah, the in Intel the, management engine. Yeah, so without that, the like CPUs won't spin up. Yep. So... It, like core boot effectively like stopped working on regular x86 machines as of you know six years ago or something like that yeah and and that's like uh the free software i don't know who who has it but anyway there's a an x200 i want to say yeah and that has the you know completely unencumbered bios um that core boot has completely rewritten now, the thing that's scary about these ThinkPads is that that uh, Intel management engine that we're talking about, it's its own CPU. It can do whatever it feels like on your hardware. It can scan your bus. It can read your memory. It can read your hard drive. It can read your everything all the time, anytime it wants. And it can, you know, send it back over the ether. It can cache it for another time. It can do anything you want. I mean, do anything it wants. And... So the fact that, you know, we can't replace that portion of the BIOS <laughs> is pretty scary. And it's also, I mean, it should be frightening, I think, to people that that we have hardware built in to our computers that has that capability. Regardless of whether you want to talk about tinfoil, you know, surveillance, that is a huge, huge problem. I mean, the hardware is specifically built to be able to surveil everything that you do. Mm -hmm. Whether it does or not, that's that's just a crazy thing. And then when they don't want to give you the abilities and capabilities to use that hardware, 
it just makes me kind of uh, very, very suspicious and what's so important that we want to, you know, do this on every single electronic device known to man and, you know, and have several hundred in a house in the form of TVs and lights and uh, refrigerators and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, uh, that's why I was um, pretty excited about this Purism Librem 13 laptop mm-hmm. that was on, uh, it wasn't Kickstarter, it was the other one. Um where they were trying to make a laptop from the ground up that everything was open source. So yeah. it was like a modern equivalent of um, whatever that old, uh, was that an old tiny Chinese laptop that uh, Richard Stallman used to use? Because it was oh, the yes. only thing that was like completely free. Yep. So they were, they were making this uh, laptop and trying to get like funding for it and saying it was going to run Coreboot. But everyone was saying, like, no, you can't use a modern Intel CPU with um, Coreboot because there's no way you're going to get Intel to sell you processors that don't have the um, that management engine stuff in it. Right. And they were, like, adamant that they were going to, to get this figured out by the time they had to ship. And, of course, uh, it came time to ship, and they, they hadn't figured it out yet. So they had to uh, release the laptop with, like, an award BIOS or something like that. Mm-hmm. Just some regular one, and then you could upgrade to Coreboot later, I guess. The Coreboot group was basically like, we've been trying to do this forever. There's no way Intel is even going to sell you these processors, no matter how many you buy, without yeah. this stuff in it, and you can't you know, get around it. So I'm still waiting for them to either f- figure it out, which I don't think is going to happen, or just basically come out and say, yeah, we thought that we were going to be able to get around this, but we... We can't. Yeah. And and to be fair, it's not just Intel. I mean, AMD has their version too. Mm-hmm. And I think even on newer ARM stuff, I think that um, like ARM has stuff built into certain system-on-chips um, that does basically the same thing, or I would imagine that it has. Uh, I don't think it's as well-documented uh, as the Intel stuff because, you know, there's a new system-on-chip family every three hours or something like that. Uh, we're all doomed. It, it's annoying for sure. I mean, it, it really is. The guy who, um, the Bunny Studios laptop, where, mm-hmm. you know, he built an ARM board and, and was trying to accomplish the same thing. I mean, I looked at that and I was like, that's really cool. One, it's really expensive. <laughs> but two, I mean, he's he's shipping with, uh, you know, a Samsung SSD. And don't we, isn't there kind of proof now that the Samsung SSDs all ship with uh, a separate coprocessor that's basically a backdoor into, you know... I didn't know that. I'm almost certain they do. I I thought it was pretty common knowledge that the that they did, yeah. Huh. Yeah. So even if it isn't built into some management engine on the CPU, it's built into the hard drive or yeah. the solid-state drive or whatever. And I guess... Even if they can't get in through that, through all these back doors in your things, they'll just come in through the front through your MIDI port access. <laughs> he browsed the web again. Yep. I thought it was a little crazy. Uh, I read that Stallman basically like pulled the content of websites to like a flash drive or something and then looked at them from another place. Now I yeah. see why it does it. it I mean, it, yeah. it seems completely rational now. I don't know. I think he finally upgraded to that X220 or whatever that you were talking about from that company that... Um, like buys the refurbished ones and then 
Or yeah. they, they buy the used ones, refurbish them, and then flash core boot on them. Yeah, the X200. Yeah. Yep. So anyway, enough of this kind of nasty hardware stuff. I did find something good in the web space this week uh, that I'm kind of excited about. Um, we've been talking about web frameworks and stuff in the past, and I always kind of complain that, you know, the mobile development space was, you know, people were like CSS frameworks that were just tons of fonts and requests and massive in size. And I found a new one called uh, Bulma, B-U-L-M-A. And this guy just looks like a really down-to-earth gentleman who likes to do UI work. And he released a CSS framework toolkit, whatever you want to call it. And um, it's real lightweight. The minified version is 56 KB. I thought that was really nice. Uh, it looks good. And um, you can integrate, like, Font Awesome if you need some icons. And uh, it's, it's built in SAS. So um, I tried to disable, like, the features that I wasn't using to see if I could whittle it down even further. And it will actually compile when you disable the features that you don't use. And I, and I say that because when I tried uh, Bootstrap originally... I was compiling the SAS and it was giving me compiler errors. Like I was like, I don't need this grid. I don't need this panels. I don't need the um, the alerts or whatever they call them. Mm -hmm. And so I tried to disable them and it wouldn't compile. And then once I finally got it to compile, it wouldn't produce CSS that actually worked. Like there was a ton of stuff packed in the panels and the grids and other stuff that impacted the way the buttons looked and all this stuff. And I was like, this sucks. Yeah. But anyway, um, the guy who did Bulma, he uh, did all the SAS rights, and it works. And uh, you can go in there and change the colors and the variables, and it updates the site and works really well. And this is still early on. So if his alpha release is this good, um, I'm excited to see um, where things go with this. I'm, I'm really happy. I enjoyed uh, getting my hands on that. It made me really excited. Yeah, I think the uh, the... The tell will be if he has the ability to say no on uh, yeah in his GitHub pull requests because I'm yep. sure there are going to be other people who you know saw it like you did and they're like oh man it's this uh, small framework that's uh, you know that works for me I just need this one little feature and then they submit a pull request and then those all add up and then you start pulling in all the stuff and then a year from now it's it's just as big as the ones are now that suck. Yeah, because, well, all right, you made me look. He's got four <laughs> pull requests right now. You should open an issue and just say, don't, don't, don't take anything. Yeah, don't accept any pull requests <laughs> unless they're bugs. Yeah. So I have a uh, software question for you because you're oh. a Go programmer. Did oh. you see this thing on uh, Lobsters? There was a uh, slide deck about the state of Go in 2016. And so I was uh, looking through it, and uh, everything was good. And I'm like, oh, they made Go faster, and they have new template stuff. And then there was a slide about... I'm um, trying to find it now. There was a slide about um, parsing times. For JSON? No, for it, the package, in the time package, it's time.parse. Oh. So if you want to parse a string date, you'd call time.parse, and then the first argument is a string, 2006 space jan space 2, 
And then the second argument is the string that you want to parse. And I read that and I'm like, wait, what? Where is 2000, where's January 2nd, 2006 coming in? So I had to go look in the documentation and the way that it parses times is that the, you format the, the constant date Monday, January 2nd at 15 hours, four minutes, five seconds, uh, in the year 2006, you format that date in the format that the date you want to format is in. That's right. Yeah. So that it knows like what, which part of it is the year, which part is the month. And I get it. It's to like remove the ambiguity of like, is the month first or is the day first, depending on right. where you're parsing. But I was <laughs> like, why the hell did they do this this way? Like why parse a string 2006 Jan 2? Why not parse a string like YYYYMMDD? Yeah, I can't answer the why. I, yeah. I have no idea. Um, it was one of those areas where I just kind of did it, and I looked up the documentation. I'm like, oh, that's the format. Um, oh, I get why it says 2006, you know? Yeah. So is it uh, natural for you now, like, to do that, or is it still weird? <clears throat> uh, it is natural now. Um, I very seldom have to reference the docs anymore. Um, and I do deal with dates quite a bit in my day job, um, you know, parsing dates out and uh, ordering yeah. by dates and stuff. So I do a fair bit of it. Um, I've already forgotten how to do it in Java. <laughs> uh, and I don't remember doing it in uh, Ruby. I did it a, quite a bit in Python. I think I've already forgotten how to do that. So, yeah, at first I kind of went, what is this? And then, you know, I read the documentation and... I really had no complaints, just that it was different than what I was used to. Um, yeah. I, mean, I agree it, with century, century, year, year, month, month, day, day. Like, that always made sense to me. And I kind of went, why am I putting a date in here? Yeah. I mean, I, I understand that they wanted to, you know, if you use, like, in Ruby, you use, like, datetime.parse, and then you just mm -hmm. pass it the string, and it figures it out. And then, like, PHP has a um, stir-to-time function that just yep. parses a, uh, an arbitrary date into a Unix time. And those are easy, but obviously there would be ambiguity about what is the day and what is the month and stuff like that in certain uh, date formats. Um, so I get why they wanted to do it this way, where you tell it the format, but I I just can't wrap my head around why they would... Why the format is what it is. Yeah, why the format is, you know, writing this particular date that you have to remember. And then uh, as I went through the code, I found an old revision where they had a comment that said, Think of it as uh, 01 slash 02 at the time 03, 04, 05 p.m. in the year of 06, and then the the um, time zone is negative seven hours. So huh, okay. that that makes sense. That's like that's why they why it is Monday, January second. But it's still I don't understand it. It's <laughs> I don't understand like I get that using the formats of like stir time. Uh, are confusing where you have to remember like percent capital Y or percent lowercase Y. Uh, but like, why not just then use four Y's and two M's and a D or something like that? It's right. weird. I mean, I don't think date parsing has ever been my favorite thing to do. Yeah. Uh, I, I certainly don't think this was my worst experience with it. Um, I don't know. I, I, I think Java takes the cake for that one for me. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it seems like just one of those things where if I came across it in the language, I'd be like, oh, that must be from some weird holdover that was in the original version. 
Yeah. Um, but for a relatively new language, I would have guessed that at least other people on the team would have been like, why are you doing it that way? That's confusing. Yeah. And then when you have um, like Swift, the new version of Swift that's completely mm -hmm. open sourced and like they have basically the community uh, redesigning the language itself yeah, and like accepting pull requests on GitHub and stuff. And they're basically like ripping out all of the old stuff from the language. Like you can't do um, like an integer variable plus plus anymore. Uh, you have to do plus equals one. Yeah. Which I disagree with because I think you use plus plus a lot, but I guess their or their reasoning was that uh, in Swift they rewrote how you do like for loops so that you don't have to do, uh, write a for loop basically, oh. and so it basically reduces the need to do plus plus, and so that so like why have that in the language? And so I guess if you're ripping out everything and starting over, you may as well rip out stuff like that. Um, so I was just confused about that when I came across this thing in Go. Yeah, I think uh, Python, I remember doing that. Like I equals I plus one or something like that. Yeah, Ruby doesn't have plus plus e uh, either. You have to do plus equals one. And I, and I never really lost too much sleep over it. Um, but in my code, like I do a lot of file processing and I do counting all over the place. I mean, the loop aside, I do a ton of counting, accounting. And, uh, you know, I, I think you know, plus and minus and all that kind of stuff. I think that does look quite a bit more clean rather than I plus equal or equals plus I plus one or whatever it happens mm -hmm. to be. I, I think it's easier to read. And I also think like the decrement counters, like, you know, uh, I minus minus or whatever. Yeah. I, think that, I prefer that too. Is that a thing? I minus minus? Yeah. Can't, can't go backwards. The opposite of plus plus. <laughs> but like in C, a lot of times you could do like if uh, var plus plus or if var minus minus is greater than zero. And I guess to some people that's confusing. Like, are you evaluating the variable before you increment or decrement it or after? And yeah. it's like, well, that's it's either I minus minus or minus minus I. So, but they ripped all that stuff out of Swift because um, I guess they, they thought that that was like a source of programming errors and so they wanted to eliminate that completely huh. which I guess I can see the benefit of yeah I mean everybody has their ideas about what makes something good or what makes something better <laughs> yeah I'm waiting for this new version of Swift to be finalized and just see like how awful it's become because the whole like node.js generation has basically gotten their hands on it and they're like oh yeah I want you know it to look basically like JavaScript. I don't think um, I don't think people who grew up with JavaScript in its infancy wanted JavaScript to be around this long or be used in the capacity it's being used now. Yeah, that's really what I never understood about um, JavaScript. Like as a, as a language itself, it's pretty terrible. And the same people that would bash um, like PHP and say that it's a bad language, they write everything in JavaScript. Yeah, and it's like they have all these weird hacks that they have to do, and then they you introduce stuff like, um, what is it, CoffeeScript? Yeah, where you're you're writing stuff to compile down to JavaScript. Yeah, it's like why didn't all this... why wasn't there just a push to get a new uh, browser agnostic language implemented? Just Dart, right? Is it? I don't know. I don't know either. <laughs> just being an idiot about it. I yeah. I think. Um... 
I mean, code execution in a browser is a scary thing. Mm -hmm. And a bad code, like a bad language executing in your browser is really scary. And, and so, like, most people would rationalize and agree with me on that. And then we moved it to the server because, you know, people are like, well, it makes sense because I only have to write it one time. Yeah. And I'm like, do you hear yourselves? Like, <laughs> like you just said how horrible it was to put on the browser and how it was a horrible language. And then you're justifying and rationalizing these horrible tools sitting on your server. I, yeah. Like I mean, maybe, maybe VB script should have won and we could all be writing visual basic code now instead of JavaScript. Back when, back when IE supported VBScript and JavaScript, and you actually had to do script uh, type equals text slash JavaScript to let I, Internet Explorer know that you weren't feeding it in VBScript. Oh, yeah. And, and were, wasn't there a um, firewall that would block uh, Visual Basic? I don't know. ActiveX is one of Oh, ActiveX. Yeah, that's know. a whole... That's yeah. the, I mean, Google made their... Uh, what was their native... NACL or whatever to yeah. do like native code that you actually compiled onto some binary and then so that what you could run like f full frame rate quake inside your browser I don't, yep, I don't know that's exactly right yeah so you could have full access to the hardware I mean and I don't know that it really sounds neat um, but I just don't think that <laughs> yeah it sounds scary yeah it's horrifying <sighs> Yeah, the thing I don't get about JavaScript on the server is like JavaScript has all of the like uh, callback hell because of the way that it has to work in a browser. Mm -hmm. But for server-side stuff, a lot of times that doesn't make sense. No. So like in Ruby, you can write a top-down script and it, it runs fine. But if you want like an evented loop kind of thing, you just pull in a module like event machine and then you can do... Um, like callbacks like that and then you just sit in an infinite loop waiting for events to happen so it's like i don't know when you have to force everything into that evented model um or like the callback thing that the javascript does mm -hmm. on the server it just seems very odd yeah i mean that was one of the things that well maybe this is slightly different but um in iis we were doing um synchronous calls to our back end and we struggled with that very, very, like for a long time because the IO threads wouldn't, um, <clears throat> they wouldn't fork from the worker threads. So you'd have like 10 IO threads that start and then 250 worker threads. But the IO thread would block waiting for the, the worker thread to do the call into the back end and then get the entire response and then it would, you know, return it back out. And that's not the way it's supposed to work. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the IO thread is supposed to, you know, let the worker thread go do its thing and then handle more I.O. I don't know. And it never made sense to me uh, why it wasn't the default for the the I.O. thread to be able to, you know, do everything asynchronously. <laughs> never made any sense to me. Yeah. And um, it turns out if you just want to do a database call, yeah, that's easy. You can do that asynchronously. Um, it'll do the connect and the write and all that kind of stuff but uh, if you want to do your own like TCP calls to another you know web service or something behind that no forget about it yeah I mean I wrote the uh, desktop client for, or the like browser version of pushover that works inside of a web browser and it uses um, 
WebSockets and IndexedDB to uh-huh. do local database storage. And the API for IndexedDB is as bad as you would imagine by putting a like database library with JavaScript. And it's so confusing to just like, not even just to, to write, but just to think about like, okay, so I issued the query and then I have to come back later, assuming that it finished. And then, uh, like, and then you have all these layers of things that you need to keep coming back for. It's just very confusing. Yeah. So basically everything in the web these days is completely hosed up. Yep. Except for uh, Bulma, that's going to be hosted up here in a few years. <laughs> yeah, we'll be writing uh, web apps in uh, Swift, and then on and the on the uh, front end, we'll have Bulma. Yep, and Rust too. Don't forget, we're going to swiftly rust our <laughs> swiftly rust our Bulma. Yeah. Hey, on the topic of web applications. Um, What's your take on uh, these progressive web applications on a mobile device in place of, um, you know, uh, an actual application on the uh, on the phone itself? Um, as long as the UI library, I guess it would be, l- makes it feel like a native app, and the user can't tell. Yeah, uh, I say, go for it. If the user can tell at all and it's like laggy or some like the fonts don't look right or the spacing is off or something like that and it looks like a cheap copy of a native app, uh, don't do it. Yeah. Well, I was thinking about it. Um, so the idea behind a progressive app is that you can, um, the, the user would pull up some commerce site or whatever in their browser and then they'd have the option to make a shortcut on their home screen so mm-hmm. they can get back to the same point in time. And, um, and then you can make it do things like uh, pull up a little splash screen while it's loading content. And you can also uh, ship all the content to the phone so that it has everything in cache. Mm-hmm. So if you're like looking at some shoes and you wanted to go back and look at shoes and you didn't have a, uh, an internet connection... Um, you could still look at all the merchandise from that site and peruse it offline. Yeah. And you don't need a native app to do that. And it seems really good to me on the surface. Um, but I know there's like some apps that it just doesn't even make sense for. Uh, but anyway, you can do notifications to it. You can push UI updates without having a whole bunch of hoopla. Um, but I, I haven't done anything with it yet, but all my care and concern about, uh, you know, small CSS files and uh, lowering the round trips. Maybe I found uh, my calling here in these progressive uh, Android or, or progressive mobile applications. Yeah. I mean, the weird thing is that the first iPhone was built that way. There were no native apps. Yeah. Um, and they were pushing this idea of making a website that felt like an app. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you could like bookmark it and it makes an icon on your home screen and it looks just like an app. And then everyone pressured them into doing native apps. But mm-hmm. I guess if we had continued on that timeline, we would be where we're at now, which is like web pages can request notifications and uh, access your webcam and basically do all the, the things that a native app can do um, inside of Safari. Well, even if it doesn't do that, I mean, uh, 
imagine if someone was browsing on your online store and they were looking at something, you know, like you walk into the bathroom, you do your, your thing, you browse some product, and then maybe like 20 minutes later you send a notification. It was like, hey, we'll give you $25 off, $25 off this order. Wait, were you in the bathroom for 20 minutes? Yeah. <laughs> How okay. else am I supposed to read Twitter? Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, anyway, if, if you were doing a commerce solution, that would, that would make so much sense to me uh, to have uh, an application like this that's, you know, I can send them a notification and offer them free shipping. Yeah. Say, hey, if you want this product, I'll give you free shipping on it because you're hitting people who you know were, were at your store. Right. And there, there's something like some huge 26% of increased sales from notifications or something like that. Yeah, that's, I get a lot of uh, sales requests uh, at Pushover of people asking if Pushover works without an app. Because mm -hmm. they want to send notifications to people that browse their website. Mm -hmm. And, if, you know, I have to tell them, no, it doesn't work like that. But I'm thinking, like, think about how much spam that would be if every website can just send you notifications after you were there for, you know, five seconds and you clicked away. So it's like, would you have to, I mean, you have, obviously, now the way it works is you have to explicitly allow those websites to send you notifications. Yep. But I think it's going to get to, it's either going to get to the point where users just click OK because it's another pop up that they don't understand. And then they're going to start getting these weird notifications. Um, you know, like you said, 20 minutes or an hour or just, you know, five days later. Yep. Um, it's either going to get like that or users are going to get pissed off about it. And the browser is basically going to have to like default to not allowing notifications. And then the process of actually allowing notifications is going to be so like cumbersome that uh, it's not going to be an effective tool to, like you said, to to get people back. Yeah. Well, I have two comments about that. The the first is that I like the model a little bit better than having twenty apps open that um, are you know waiting for notifications. I mm -hmm. think you know those chew through a lot of battery, and with this model, you have. Um, this notification that comes in and it says, oh, I need to wake up this thread with this notification. It wakes up your process and gives you the notification. I like that aspect of it. The other thing I think is uh, maybe as an end user, maybe it isn't the merchants who push this on. Maybe it's the merchants who uh, enable. So for me, I'll be looking at a website and I'll say, you know what, i got to show this to my friend when I get home. And so if I could enable a reminder right there on the site say hey watch this you know video with your friend or hey show your friend this tool or whatever you know like oh we're working on this welder you know oh I need to get this thing and you know uh, pull it back up later and, and send you a reminder later maybe that is a better use case for it um, to that I would say you need to get an iPhone because <laughs> it has that already <laughs> Does it really? Yeah. So in iOS, there's um, an API where if you talk to Siri while you're in an app and the oh, app supports yeah. the API, you can say, you know, just hold down the home button and then tell Siri, remind me of this in 20 minutes or something. And then yeah. in 20 minutes, Siri pops up a reminder and you tap on it and it brings you back to the the activity that you were in in that app. So you can do just like you said, like if you were on a web page or something and, and you wanted to be notified of that certain URL or do some action with that URL, as long as it supports that API, um, you can enable all of that stuff. Nice. 
Yeah, what a strange uh, episode this week was. Yeah, lots of complaining. <laughs> My wife says, uh, who wants to listen to a show about people complaining? Yeah, honestly. But I do, so. Yeah, some some episodes are more valuable than others, I suppose. <laughs> well, I think a lot of people uh, feel the same way that we do about uh, problems with stuff, so hopefully people have been listening to this and been nodding their heads in agreement in their cars, yeah, you... being like, yes, I hate that as well. Yes. And and honestly, you're not alone. I think that was one of the things I took away from EuroBSDCon that made me the most inspired is, um, you know, every day I go into work and I have to fight for something. And, and I'm like, you don't understand. This just makes sense. Like, why can't we just do the thing that makes sense? Well, I'm worried about, and then there's some empty speculation about something that is yeah. completely unrelated. And and I'm like, well, how about until you come up with a good counter argument, we just do the thing that makes sense right. and solves our problem. So, for instance, if I argue, if if I argued, I did it again. <laughs> if if I petitioned to someone and I said, hey, uh, we should use OpenBSD as a firewall and a router because it has really good performance and it's really easy to set up. And uh, once you configure it, you'll forget about it. You don't have to touch it again. Um, they'd say. Well, you know, I mean, the Cisco thing, and I'm like, so you have to get a certification. You don't know anything about OpenBSD, and I'm telling you, I've used Cisco, and I've used OpenBSD, and I'm petitioning for, you know, OpenBSD, and you're telling me, no, we can't use it because you've never heard of it. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, in technology, there's a lot of very highly biased arguments that happen and are constructed that way. And... um and, and what I found when I was at the conference is that these people use uh, rationalization to make decisions rather than um, uncertainty and speculation and uncertainty to, you know, um, to evaluate a problem. And I think that uh, it, it, it was really um, kind of enlightening to hear how they think and how they process. And I wished that, like, every person that I came in contact with in my you know, my circles around here um, thought that way. It would make my life so much easier. <laughs> All right. So we should wrap this show, huh? Yeah, it's getting pretty long in the tooth. All right. All right. Well, that's all we have for this episode. Uh, if there's anything you'd like to hear us complain about in a future episode, you can reach us on Twitter at GarbageFM. Subscribe to our show's RSS feed on our website at garbage.fm. Uh, find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Brandon, where can people find you if they want to complain at you? Yeah, they can complain to me on Twitter. I'm at NoMercyMod with a K-N-O-W. And if you want to look me up on uh, Google+, Plus, I'm on there. And I've been known to put a couple rants on there. So, <laughs> And I'm on the web at JCS.org and on Twitter at JCS. And I am not on Google+. Plus. Oh, excellent.